0: spend a few moments with Joshua. This is a message this week and next week. uh, We're going to spend some time preparing for Summer Bible Jam. And seeing as the Bible is such a critical centerpiece for being a Christian and and accurately understanding God's voice, uh, we think it worthy and important that we spend time periodically just focusing on its importance, the the message today is called Dwelling in the Promised Land by Dwelling in God's Word. And, you know, like the, the Lord being in our midst. You know, the scriptures say this, that the gift of prophecy is used on occasion. One of the effects of the gift of prophecy in the gathering of God's people is to get people's attention and to let them know surely God is, is in the midst of these people. Um, the word that was given this morning was was a word that came from Brandy, had a burden to send that to us, had a sense from God to send that to us. She has no idea Bible jam is coming. She has no idea I'm gonna be preaching from Joshua chapter one, verse eight. She has no idea. She stands in front of this audience and says there are people who are not entering into the promised land because of fear and issues that are needing to be overcome, that there is a message coming right behind her on entering into the promised land. Now, I find that really exciting because that means I studied the right passage today. <laughs> uh, but I, I find it really exciting in that God went before us and created this meeting this morning. And, and that's not scripted activity. She just sent that email in and said, hey, I, just have, I feel like I've got a word from the Lord for the church and it just so happens this morning that we're going to we're going to talk about entering into the promised land and we're going to we're going to look at it from maybe from two angles would be accurate there's a group of people in scripture in Joshua who are going to enter in from all right here's promised land they're going to enter in from this direction cross the jordan sort of that sort of southeast and then we're going to visit later another group that's going to enter into the promised land from the northeast And we're going to learn something about living in the promises of God. And, you know, don't raise your hand on this. But, you know, when you read the Bible, you go to church a few times, you hear a presentation that there's this thing called the Christian life. And you get to experience some things in it. And it feels a certain way. And people tell testimonies about it. And they publish it and promote it. And then you start looking at your own life sometimes. And and you might be feeling like, hey, whatever it is, you're experiencing doesn't sound like what I'm experiencing. Whatever land you're living in, it doesn't, doesn't sound like that's the land that I've been living in. Right, there's a real feel that for many Christians, it doesn't feel like we're living in the promised land. There's something called the Promised Land, but it doesn't feel like we're living in it. So let's let's learn something from The grand entrance, the first time the people of God are being introduced into moving into the promised land is happening here in Joshua 1. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. ...to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon... ...I have given to you. Just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon... ...as far as the great river, the river Euphrates... ...all the land of the Hittites to the great sea... ...toward the going down of the sun... ...shall be your territory. Well, Lord, again, we are grateful for words preserved by your hand for us today to read and benefit from. Lord, this this word is living, it's active, reaches into our hearts and lives. Lord, would you make our hearts and lives this morning accessible to this word? Would you make our hearts like thirsty ground to drink up this word as we study it together in Jesus' name? Amen. But remember, here's, here's the context. If you follow the storyline, there's been a visit of God's people at Mount Sinai. They've been rescued from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. Forty years later, Moses dies. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? The distance from Egypt to Mount Sinai is about a month's travel. They're arriving there 40 years later. So sometimes getting where God's taking you takes longer than it seems like it ever should have because there's this, there's this huge complication involved. Us. <laughs> God's really good about getting us where we need to be, but we're not really good about following him real well. So 40 years later, uh, here they are about to enter into this land, and they're going to enter into a a real geographic land. And when you're reading the Bible, which we hope you're going to do this summer, there's... there's Activity taking place in the Old Testament that's designed to help point you to something that's going to happen in the New Testament. There's types and shadows. You've heard those words mentioned. There's you know billboards on the highway, if you will, that explain. You know the sign is not the actual destination, but it tells you that the next exit you can go to Cracker Barrel. You know the sign's not Cracker Barrel, but you can get off and go. Well, this promised land, this geographic land. Is, is a sign that points to another land. It's, it's not actually the eternal land of the promises of God, but it's used in the Old Testament to illustrate something. And, and land meant something to people in a huge way back then. To have a national identity meant something to people because there was wars and factions. And, and if you were identified with a group, just like it is for us today, you know, we're Americans. And if you, you do something against somebody else in America, hey, you're picking on me too. Right, because we're together as a nation. So this is a national identity. It's a, it's a source of protection. Our land has borders to it. We know that if we're in our borders, we're protected and we're safe. Uh, there's resources in our land. right? We've got ability to raise up crops and, and, and farm our animals. So there's, there's great benefits in the promised land. And please make, make note of this. Because depending on what your personality is like, God is either a God who entices you towards obedience or he drives you towards obedience. Depending on what your personality is like. Some people who believe in an austere, severe, driving God don't have any room for God to entice anybody. And some people who only believe in enticement don't have any room for God to be austere and demanding. But read the Bible honestly and you find there's both. But in this situation, this is an enticement. It's the land of promise. It's not a waiting room. It's not a torture chamber. It's the land of promise, right? What's going on in this land? Well, it's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, the advertisement for this place is awesome. The brochure for this piece of real estate is incredible. So don't, don't feel like God doesn't sometimes throw a reward out in front of you and say, hey, why don't you do this? It'll be good. Once you do, it'll be good for you. You're going to like this. Obey me, and you will like this. God does that in Scripture. So don't hate God's rewards. The promised land is a reward. But the promised land is not always being lived in by the people that it was designed for. It's a reality then, reality now. Charles Spurgeon says The children of Israel had been journeying towards the land of promise. Owing to their waywardness, What might have been done in less than a month, occupied many years. They wandered up and down in the wilderness, sometimes close on the border of their inheritance, and lost in the great desert. Alas, many of God's people are still in this unsatisfactory condition. They come out of Egypt. The depths have swallowed up their adversaries, and they are on the way to the promised heritage, but they have not yet Entered into rest. And that might be, that might be your story. Right? I've not yet entered into rest. I, I, I don't experience much rest. Let me, make sure you inform that completely, right? Jesus made a statement to his followers. He says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. It's not the only statement he made, though. He made another statement sometime around that same time where he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He made both statements. I came so you could have abundant life and in this world, you're gonna have tribulation. So I can't stand in front of you this morning and saying the, the promised land for the Christian is a trouble-free environment. There's no sorrow and tears. There's no struggle. There's no disappointment and confusion. People don't do the wrong thing and you don't do the wrong thing. It's the promised land. And as a Christian if you'll just push the right buttons, you can have that. Okay. That's, that's the prosperity gospel that I just explained. And it's, it's not scriptural because you cannot nowhere in the Bible can anybody press the right series of buttons and be guaranteed the right outcome. It doesn't happen. And it's not going to happen in this world because you and I live with enormous promises given to us as Christians that in God's plan, we get to experience a level of them here and an eternality with God forever where they are fulfilled completely without any of the issues I just described. But but don't overexpect the promised land means there's no trouble, there's no difficulties. It wasn't that way for them. God said, hey, I've got all these promises in the promised land, uh, but there's people living in the promised land. You're going to fight wars in the promised land, right? The promised land didn't mean skate across trouble-free living. It meant life on earth, but but God uniquely with them and God's promises in that setting, right? So this is not a trouble-free message, but it it is a, a message where we ought to have a little bit more of a supernaturally touched life. God promises to go with them. God creates an environment where good things can happen for them. We ought to expect some good things are happening in our lives. People who dwell in the land of promise should feel that way. But it might be worth noticing some of the promises and the necessary conditions and criteria that accompany us dwelling in God's promised land. Great promises are here in this passage. However, so are some conditions and criteria for us to experience these promises. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, first I want to look at verse 5 here, the Life's accompanying promises. You go to do life, these promises for the believer go with you. And then in a moment, I'm going to look at life's necessary attitudes in the next verse. But first, first the promises? Here's God's promise. You want to dwell in the, in the land, the location that God has set out for you? I think it's an accurate way to describe the promised land. Your God has determined for your life to live in a particular environment. He wants that for us as his people. Now, to enter into that, God says, well, let me promise you a couple of things. First, let me promise you this. No enemy will be able to stand before you. All right, that's a loaded promise. Did you read the fine print really carefully? Because if you read the part about them not being able to stand too quickly, you overlook the fact that there will be enemies. And when you encounter a lot of these enemies, they're, they're not gonna stand in front of you and the first word out of, out of their mouth is, I, I'm, I'm about to fall down. I'm on my way down. Is that what you find when you read the story of them entering into the promised land, right? They go into the promised land. The, the, the scouts go in and bring back a report. There's well-established people in the lands. There's people here already. This is God's promise. There's already people here. Moses, what are we gonna do? They're organized. They've organized themselves into cities. The cities have walls. Some of these people are giants. So God stands and says, no enemy will be able to stand before you. However, there's lots of enemies in the land. And you're going to need to be prepared to encounter them. And the good news is, they're not going to be able to stand. They don't have the ability to successfully resist the purpose of God. That's the ultimate news. But at some point, when you first meet the enemies in the land, they are standing. Their walls around their cities are up. Right? You know, they didn't walk up to Jericho and it's like, wow, I wonder what happened here. Look at all the crumbly mess. Is that the story of Jericho? The story of Jericho is to walk up and say, whoa, that's an impressive city. Look at the wall around this thing. All right, then your mind starts thinking, how on earth are we ever going to take that? Right, that's how you encounter the enemies that are not going to be able to stand in your life. That's how you and I encounter them too. God, God's got a territory for you. It doesn't have a geography. It doesn't include you know, New Jersey and Florida or whatever. It, it is a land to dwell in though. He intends for your life to dwell in a land where it's uniquely blessed and favored by God. Your marriage your physical being, your finances, all that's intended by God to live in a land that he has set the territory for. When you go to enter that land, you're going to bump into fortified cities and enemies that stand. Now the promise of God is those enemies won't be able to resist me. I will overcome them. But your first laying eyes upon them is going to make fear swell up in your heart. Because what's interesting is even though God says this land exists, when they they show up, it doesn't feel like it's automatically theirs. As a matter of fact, it feels like it belongs to somebody else. Do you recognize that's probably going to be true for us when God makes promises to you about your life? The first time you gaze upon them, they're not going to look like they're automatically yours. Because in some ways, they're not automatically yours. They're, they're going to take something for you to live in them. And it's going to take something for them to live in them. Right Now the promise, got one promise. We've got enemies in the land. The other promise is I will be with you and I will never forsake you. God makes a promise that his presence is going to go with us into this land where there's enemies and a place for us to dwell. The great promise for us is that the presence of God will go with us. This is not a small promise. Matter of fact, this is a deal killer for Moses. Do you remember that? When Moses is leading the people up from Egypt and they get to Sinai and he's going to take them now into the promised land and, and God sort of just, by the way, says, I'm going to send my angel with you. You guys go ahead on. Er, Moses slams the brakes on. Before he walks out of that meeting with God, he stops, he turns back to God and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. What do you mean you can going go send your angel before us? Lord, if, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't, don't send us up from here. Because God, we understand that's the only thing that makes us different than all the peoples in this world is that your presence is with us. Your hand of favor is upon our lives. So if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. When Jesus gives his church the Great Commission and he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, the last thing he says is not to be overlooked. It's perhaps the most important thing he says. Our going's not the most important things. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That's the most important thing about the Great Commission. Because if you subtract that, you has got a bunch of human effort going to do the impossible. The same thing's true going to the promised land. Listen, God's presence is significant. It it is necessary for us to be mindful of God's presence. Not just, oh, yeah, Keith, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that this moment. I hadn't thought about that in forever. Well, If I haven't thought about the presence of God being with me, well, then what kind of life am I leading? More than likely, I'm leading a life that's about Keith-sized. Whatever I think I can do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do the stuff that's in over my head. I'm not going to do the stuff that's beyond me. I'm not going to do the stuff that takes faith because faith means I'm looking for God to do in this situation beyond what I can do. And if I'm not mindful that God goes with me, whatever you're facing that feels impossible, do you greet that with a sense that this certainly looks like giants. It looks like fortified cities. It looks like this will never be mine. I'll never get this. Oh, Oh, yeah. But God is with me. Well, that changes the whole thing, doesn't it? See, daily, daily. they just, just can't be the reminder that pops up every once in a while. Daily, I have need for being reminded that mysteriously the presence of God dwells in me, goes with me, and his hand of favor is on my life. I'm looking at verse 6 here. All right, so we've got... Promises to accompany us. Promises of enemies. Promises of God's presence. And then there's necessary attitudes that that have to go with us. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Did I mention to you to be courageous? <laughs> you know, when you have God coming back and saying, did I, did I mention courageous to you? Did I mention very courageous to you? I mean, I, I'm regrouping when I'm listening to that. <clears throat> like, Lord, why? Why are you emphasizing I'm going to have to be courageous? Very, you said very courageous. Well, because entering the land is going to scare the daylights out of Entering into this good, wonderful, promised land. With all the milk and honey in it. The land of glowing prosperity. Entering that, it's going to freak you out. And you're going to want to run like a little girl. <laughs> you're going to need to be very courageous. Did he really mean that? What if you go into the land and you're not strong and you're not courageous either? You know, what if you just choose to live the Christian life where what you're doing as a Christian doesn't require you to be courageous at all? What if everything about your life, you know you can do it? You know you can do it. Matter of fact, you've carefully constructed a life that is filled with only the things that you can do. No surprises. There's no failure in store here. There's no enemies. I don't go where there are enemies. you kidding me? I'm not an idiot. I stay away from the enemies. But God says, well, there's this beautiful promised land. Well, but God, there's enemies in the promised land. I don't do enemies. You only need to be courageous when you've got to fight things that you don't think you can beat. I mean, of you know the God who is over your life and who we're reading about today, calls you into settings that are going to frighten you. And he lets you know in advance you're going to need to be courageous. Don't make this just about people in the desert. Right? This is, a, this is a billboard to teach you and I how to live our lives. If you and I are going to live and dwell in the promises of God, you're going to have to have some guts to do it. And Peter talked about offering. It takes guts to give. It takes guts because uh, I don't have any bill collectors that call my house and say, hey, we're just calling to check in. Did, did you tithe this month? Well, we're going to reduce everything for you. You got, you know, intergy, you got an energy plan that does that? I'm on the tithing plan, energy. Can you reduce mine? They don't do that. So giving in the face of need, it takes some courage. Living in your marriage when it doesn't feel rewarding, when the person turns out to be more complicated than you thought, when they're not affectionate and caring toward you, but you have made a covenant promise with your life. That takes courage. Listen, it doesn't take any courage to not give. It doesn't take any courage to walk away from relationships. Do you understand? This, this is what I mean But there are Christians who choose not to live in The promised land. The promised land takes guts to live in it. Fact. And then you have this next little attitude element. Be strong and courageous. Be very courageous. Verse 7. Be careful. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go, right? So here's another enticement, right? Is that an enticement or is that a stick? God driving you with that or inviting you with that? It's God saying, hey, if you won't turn away from my word, you'll have success wherever you go. That's an enticement. It's a promise from God, a reward for trusting him and walking in obedience, right? Let's make sure we see that in scripture, But be careful, I'll I'll say it this way because it's implied in the verse, to know and to do the word of God. You can't do what you don't know, so I think knowing is implied here. Be careful to know and to do God's word. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Be careful to know and to do God's word. Being careful to know God's word and being careful to do God's word is not the same as having a Bible in your house. Why? We own a Bible. Does that qualify for being careful to know God's word, ownership of a Bible? Heck, I own a Bible, I got apps. Got an iPad. Man, I got Bible everywhere in my life, man. Being careful is not the same as just having the Bible. Being careful is not the same as growing up in church and hearing stories and being able to sing the Father Abraham song. You know, I remember, yeah, I remember Abraham. Yeah, was that Moses or was that Abraham? Yeah, I kind of remember that. That's not being careful. That's having information in you that's that's sort of distant, removed, and secondary, and it's not going to help you. Being careful to do, being careful to know, has got to be much more than just somewhere in our minds is a little bit of biblical information. We don't even know who the 12 apostles are, can't name the five books of the Bible. These words mean something. Do these words mean something? God says I want you to enter into these promises. I want you to be strong, I want you to be courageous, I want you to be careful. Ah, oh, we don't need to do any of those. I don't need to be careful. I don't need to make significance Room in my life for God's word. I don't need to be careful to study it and to know it and to apply it and experience it. I don't need to do that. I don't know what God's talking about here. He doesn't know what he's talking about here. Because I don't need to do this to live in the promises of God. I can live the good Christian life. I don't need to do this. Sign your name right below that statement. Nobody would sign their name to it, but, we, but our lives say it loud God said be strong God said be courageous God said be careful to do this one thing to make sure you know and do my word." oh we don't need to do that we need to do this if anybody in this room is interested in experiencing and living in the promises of God this, this is not negotiable and, and please don't waste your time. Look, I'm a reformed theology guy. Don't waste your time trying to argue, well, wait, 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 well human responsibility. and Just read the Bible, man. The the Bible just turned around and told you, be careful in this category. Do not trump what's clear in Scripture with your questionable theology. Well, I don't understand how, you know, if God's sovereign over everything and he knows everything's going to happen, he's planned it all out. Well, I mean, what does it matter what I do? Look, I'm just short-circuiting a really bad experience for you. Do not disobey God your whole life and then bring up that stupid question in the presence of God when you get to heaven. I'm just trying to spare you something here. gods I think God's first answer is going to be, you know, I made it really, really clear. I know there's some mystery. I'm the God of the universe. I know something about mystery, and you don't get a lot about me. I get that. But I—you I, know—I gave I gave instructions to idiots here. Be careful. I don't know. It's, it's like a verb. You know, be careful. Were you careful? Well, no, I didn't really think I needed to be careful. I thought you were being careful on my behalf. <laughs> uh, well, I don't find that in this passage. Be careful. Right? Verse 8. <clears throat> this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful <clears throat> to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Man, I don't know what Bible some of us are reading from. Because I, somewhere along the line we started believing that we could be prosperous and have good success without reading the Bible. Even some prosperity people don't even read the Bible. But are you reading this verse with me? What is it that enables our carefulness that allows for prosperity and success to accompany our lives? Well, it is being careful to know and to do and to meditate on God's word every day. It's what enables us to do this. It's not a small thing. It's a critical thing. It could be a small thing we've been overlooking. It's critical to the outcome of our lives. Charles Spurgeon again says, I want the Lord's people so to persevere in their seeking by the divine strength that they may get out of the great and terrible wilderness and come to Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem and enter their heritage according to that word. We which have believed do enter into rest. Our friends have come as far as that first verse of the Lord's invitation. Come unto me, All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And they have a measure of that rest, which comes of pardon, sin, and confidence in Jesus. The pity is that they have not advanced to his next word of exhortation. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me and take the yoke of learning of me upon yourself. Then you will find rest for your souls. Rest is what it feels like to dwell on the promises of God. That's what was promised to them. The promised land was a land of rest. Well, how do we get to this condition of rest? Well, we learn of him. Well, how do we learn of him? By the word of God. Listen, being careful. Some of us can live our lives to be careful to do all that God has said. And some of us are living our lives to be desperate to do whatever our life demands that we do next. We're desperate. Desperate. We're not not at rest. My soul is not at rest. I am restless. I run from thing to thing, activity to activity. My mind races. My goals change. My people groups change because I'm restless. I'm not settled on the inside. Because you, you don't know God in a way that would settle you. You know some things about God, but you don't know God in a way that your soul has come to him and has taken the yoke of learning of him in such a way that you can rest in your life. You're not panic driven. You're not driven from thing to thing. Every other word out of your mouth is not fear and overwhelming thoughts because your soul has found rest in God. Now, this is what God says to Joshua and to the people to enter into the promised land. Now, let me just contrast another group here. The people who lived to the northeast. These are the southeast guys. This is the northeast guys. Northeast of the promised land was a land called Babylon. It was where God's people went when they weren't living in the promises. They lived instead in a little, little area called Babylon. This is how they got there. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God and despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. All right, listen know the difference. When I say this, when I talk about what our culture is doing, our culture is not the people of God. Our culture is a nation that you and I live in. The church is the people of God. In this setting, the people of God was a nation called Israel. So everybody there is not the people of God either. You and I live in a culture that's doing exactly what this verse says. It despises God's word and it scoffs his prophets. God has spoken about life. This culture is despising what God has said about life. And is it's scoffing at the voices that represent the prophets that speak what God has said about life. That's the culture you and I live in. Be careful how we listen to it. It doesn't like God's ideas. Well, that happened until, verse 16, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Until there was no remedy. All right. Everybody join me in this. I don't know if we put this verse up or not on the screen. But if you will make a reference to Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 and 16, these two verses sit back to back to each other, and they tell you something about God. On the one hand, it tells you that this God is a God of compassion. God waited and sent messengers and waited and he sent messengers and he waited and he sent messengers because he had compassion on his people. And then he got to another moment where the righteous thing to do, does God do anything unrighteous? No. So the righteous thing to do in the beginning for God was to have compassion on his people and wait patiently. The righteous thing to do a little bit later was to pronounce wrath and judgment upon them. And the same God did both. And the foolishness of this world that stands and chooses for God to be one or the other does a travesty to God. You're not telling God's story. If your God is only a God of mercy and compassion, God would never do that. I mean, you're going to hate the rest of this verse because God did exactly what you never thought he would do. And and, you know, quite honestly, uh, I could whip out some calculus on a few of y'all and you'd be lost in a second. You could, right? I mean, you guys are knowing calculus. I don't even took calculus. Exactly. There's stuff you don't know. But you're absolutely sure that God would never do stuff like this. You're absolutely sure about that. Listen, you can't even do basic math. Calculus in the universe, I think it's basic math. But I'm absolutely sure God would never do stuff like that. Man, dude, don't do that. Don't do that. Just humble yourself and say, I'm just not sure about a lot. I think I can change my tire if I got a flat on the way home. But I'm not even sure about that. Don't be so sure that God's not a little different than what you think he's like. Because I'm just reading this Bible that's reporting to me who God is. He's compassionate. And then the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. This king killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. He took into exile, this king took into exile in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him. And to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land, the promised land, had enjoyed its sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept sabbath to fulfill 70 years. All right, that sounds like gobbledygook. Does it sound like, what the heck is going on here? Something very simple is going on here. God gathered a people to himself and he spoke his word to them, a word that they were supposed to meditate on. They were supposed to know it and do it. Know it and do it. One of the things God said was, here's how I work with you guys. I'm going to bring you into this land and I'm going to give this land to you. But here's the deal I'm going to make with you because I don't ever want you to look into the land. I want you to look to me. Every seven years, you let the land rest. I don't want you to plant anything. I don't want you to harvest stuff. Just let it rest. Leave the land alone. Oh, how will we eat? How will we grow crops and live in the seventh year, God? All right, all of a sudden, a little fear in the land, right? A little enemy. Well, God says, Well, I'm the one who's providing for you. The dirt's not providing for you, I'm providing for you. So every seven years, a little bit of a challenge, you just look to me, I'll take care of you. Well, for whatever reason, could have been greed. Okay, let the land rest in the seventh year. That's a whole year's worth of salary gone. What the heck? So they decided every seven years that they had a different way to do it, rather than God's. So every seven year, God collected that year, and collected that one, and did it again, and collected that one, and did it again, and collected that one, and He sent messengers to Him and said, "Stop doing this. Live the way I told you to live. Trust me." And they did it again. And he collected that year, and he did it again, and he collected that year. And after time went by, God had seventy years in His hands, and He said, "I tell you what." since you guys won't obey me and do what I've said to do, I'm kicking your butts out of this land and I'm going to let the land rest for 70 years because ain't going to be nobody living here and you'll go live in Babylon. <clears throat> that's how they end up in exile. That's why they're there for 70 years. All right, you've all heard of the 70-year exile, right? You ever know why those 70 years were there? Because there was this little bitty thing, I mean, come on, that's not that important. Of all the things that God has said, it's not like we're committing adultery and murdering. God had said, let the land rest every seven years. And he meant let the land rest every seven years. I don't think because the land was that important. I think because you need to trust me was so important. And they disobeyed. And disobedience will move you out of experiencing the promises. Now they don't live in the promised land anymore because of disobedience to God's word, right? If This is a formula. I think I put it in your outline this way. Good math formula. Neglected knowledge, which is what they did in the land, equals neglected obedience. When you don't know to do, you don't do. So you disobey. Which creates personal problems and God's opposition. I do not think God would ever oppose me. When you stop trusting him, when you start hoping in idols, oh, absolutely he will oppose you. In order to restore you to actually trusting in him. I mean, it's opposition with a good purpose. But now, look here. You want to turn to Ezra with me? I think I put some of this in your outline. Ezra chapter 7. How did, how did they return to dwelling in the promises? Let's learn something about God's word here. Ezra chapter 7. Right? So this is after they've been in exile. This is the end of the 70 years. And now the waves of God's people are returning to the land. Ezra? Chapter 7, verse 6, Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. In the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Right, that's the presence of God. God's favor was on his life. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Basically, Ezra was doing summer Bible jam. If you just want to know where summer, this is summer Bible jam right here, right? He was, he was eager to study, he was eager to do it, and he was going to share it with others. Summer Bible jam. Now, watch what happens here, right? If you're in the neighborhood there of Ezra, just flip over to Nehemiah, which would be the next book over into chapter 8. It says, and all the people gathered, chapter 8, verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, bring the word of God to us that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. People have turned their hearts to knowing God's word. And God begins to move in their lives. And they begin to become aware of their condition and their need for God. Verse 12, And all the people went their way after this meeting, to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So they've been living in this condition, but when God's word is received in their lives, their hearts turn to rejoicing. There's an awareness that God's up to something, God's moving, God's doing, and their hearts have gotten reminded of that. And you turn over in chapter nine of Nehemiah, another moment where the word is being Read Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. For a quarter of the day, for another quarter, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. But what's the effect here? You see, people get around the word of God. And and what ends up coming to them is cause for rejoicing. We've got cause for rejoicing. The word of God informed them of that. They have need of repentance and confession of sin and turning to God in worship. The word of God informed them of that. You You understand, if you don't pick the word of God up in your life, you might be going days after days after days of being unaware of your need to confess your sin and repent. And that thing just grows and festers and hangs out in your life and has more and more of an impact. It's the word of God that brings rejoicing and also brings change and repentance and a sense of awareness of my own condition. Interesting passage here. In Ezra chapter three, I'm gonna finish with this thought. Similar situation. Seventh month came. The children of Israel were in the towns. The people prepared as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. Where did they get the idea to do burnt offerings and offer to God? From God's word. Then verse three, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. All right key element that you and I would get in touch with most is not God's word in this passage. It's the fact that they were afraid of life. These people were doing life and the enemies of life rose up around them in such a way that they became afraid of their lives. And then they did according to God's word. They offered burnt offerings and they celebrated a feast. Now, listen The offering of burnt offerings is God's idea from his word because it teaches us something. And the feasts are God's idea from his word because they all teach us something too. And if you're mindful of both of these and life comes at you, you don't have to live in fear. If you're mindful of both of these, right? Burnt offerings teach that there is a sacrifice that God has ordained to forgive sins and restore us to God so that his presence continues to go with us. Because sin creates an offense between us and God, but the burnt offering in the Old Testament was a billboard sign pointing to Jesus Christ, saying one day the ultimate sacrifice will come and lay down His life to restore you to God, so you don't have to be afraid. Well, but I, but I, I blew it last week, and I, and I I messed up yesterday, and and, and I, I just there's just no way God can bless me. Uh, well, well, God is with you because a sacrifice has taken place to forgive those sins. So God is with you, right? That burnt offering reminds them of that, and it's pretty important when the bully shows up that the bigger bully is with you. I'm afraid of life. The big bully showed up. Oh, that's right. God's with me. Bring it on. You know, ever see kids talk tough when the big big guy shows up? You know, they see their big brother come and say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you do that again, man. Take you down. A few minutes ago, the kid's scared to death. Well, this is God saying, so, you know, if you do the burnt offering thing, it reminds you over and over again that I've overcome your sin and I'm your God with you because I've, I've found the way to remove your sin from our relationship. And then these festivals, these feasts, they celebrated these feasts, right? Walter Elwell says, they were, they were commemorative and that they, listen, they kept alive the story of what God had done in the Exodus and during the sojourn. They were theological and that the observance of the festivals presented the participants with lessons on the reality of sin, judgment, and forgiveness, on the need for thanksgiving to God, and on the importance of trusting God rather than hoarding possessions. See, God installed these things. God has put these things in the Word to teach us something. I don't know, when the last time you read something that put you in touch with the reality of sin and with forgiveness... And with the fact that God is with you and these reminders, you know, these, these festivals that they would create, they they were literally, they they were sort of what we do in the fall around New Orleans with these festivals and schools and stuff have these feasts and there's bands and people come together and there's out this big celebration. And I don't know what they're celebrating, but these festivals were to celebrate something that God had done. We dwelled in the wilderness and we never went hungry and our clothes never worn out. And we lived in these tabernacles and God was always faithful to us in the wilderness And now that we dwell in the promised land, oh, how much more? Well, how much more confidence do you get by knowing that God showed up in the wilderness? Where'd you get that idea from? Well, from the Word. It was written down, and I meditate on it day and night. So I'm reminded of who God is and what He's like and what He's done. All right, listen. Do Do you see this? There is this promised land. If you're a Christian, Your feet are designed spiritually to dwell in a certain land, to experience the benefit of the the land of milk and honey. No, it's not full. It's not glory land, but it is a blessed land. It is a place of God's favor on your life. It stands available to every Christian who's ready to be strong, be courageous, and be careful. If you're not going to do those things, if you're not going to be careful, I don't think you're going to dwell in the them. I think you're going to live in Babylon. Those' are still God's people. God still went and got them, brought them. God still deals with his people. He just has them in Babylon. And, and if God's word is a foreign thing to us, if you and I are not reminded about who God is, we're not dwelling in it on a regular basis, well, then we probably are living life in Babylon. Probably. Trying to call upon the promises of God. Wondering why why does life feel this way? Why do all the people around us speak a foreign language? Because you're not dwelling in the promises of God. So listen, Summer Bible Jam is about us getting with God in his word. Meditating on God's word every day. And man, guys, make this work for you. It's a non-negotiable. You, you, you can't really dwell in God's purposes without dwelling in God's word. So please don't don't delay putting this off. Make a decision, right? Remember, I, I tell you, if you're going to be a Christian and you're not going to have any guts, well, I don't know if I'd find time. I don't know, I've got a lot to do anyway. We're going to be traveling a lot this summer. That's not even that hard a list. I mean, if the Bible said, be courageous. Oh, by the way, be very courageous. Well, I don't know if I can remember to do that every day. I mean... See, that didn't even count for being a wimp yet. Be courageous. All right, to do this, it's going it's to require our attention. It's going to require some adjustment. It required that for them to enter the promised land. You want to stay where you are wandering in the wilderness? Well, then stay where you are. Keep doing what you're doing. If You, you want to experience what God had in mind when he designed your life to dwell in his promises, be courageous. Be careful to meditate on God's word every day and watch the impact that it has. So first thing, determine when you leave here today, get you a Bible reading plan that you plan on starting June 1st. Think about it. Think about what you really like to learn something about. Think about where you'd like to study Think about something in scripture that you've read a long time ago, or maybe you've never really read and studied, and you'd really be curious to to grow in that area. Or, Or maybe have some conversations with the people that you'd like to do this with and say, hey, what are you guys thinking about? What would you guys like to do? And maybe they'd present some options, and you could agree with one of those. But do that first this week. Do it today. And create an opportunity this summer to be careful so that you can enter in Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the necessity of this word. Lord, our lives get in crosswinds. We get moved, blown, changed. But Lord, your word is true. It's true for us this morning. And Lord, our hearts join with this revelation given to Joshua. Lord, we want to be careful to know you in your word and to do your word. So Lord, help us this summer. May we be a revolutionized bunch of people by doing something so simple as this summer Bible jam of being with you in your word and taking up those words of truth and encouraging one another. God, give us grace for days ahead. Lord, meet us here Wednesday night. Uh, For Lord, just like the exiles, when they departed to return, uh, Lord, they stopped and they called a prayer meeting. And they ask for your grace to help them return across hostile territory. Lord, we're asking for that. This Wednesday night, Lord, we're going to gather here. We're going to pray for your favor, that you will give us grace throughout the summer to be impacted by your word and to meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.